You are listening to Keenan Live, where I'm going to be talking to the interesting, the rebellious, and the successful. People who do things that others just can't or won't. All right. We are live. Ben, can you hear me, brother? Here you fine, yep. <laughs> Welcome, my brother. Welcome to Keenan Live, where we talk with the rebellious the interesting and the successful. You know what's funny? I just did it wrong. It's the interesting, the rebellious, and the successful. You think I'd get my shit together? You know, my friend, fall into all three categories. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I, I try. <laughs> I you try. do. You do. You're an interesting cat. Like, so you're an interesting cat for starters, because here's the gig. I, I was reading an article on you. I got to jump right in with this shit. Right? And you first off, you're from Boston, right? I, yeah. Look, look, look. Oh, yeah. Look at that. Yeah. Can you see that? Is that a, a, a Patriots? I can't oh, see. Oh, baby. I got you. Yeah, absolutely. I Good. got you. I got <laughs> yes. I am a diehard Patriots fan. I grew up in in, in Boston. Oh, is that right? Yes. Where, where in town? Yeah, that's awesome. Yes. I lived all over, but I did for a period of time when I was in high school. Oh, we could actually talk about it. It's an interesting story, actually. I lived between Fairfield and Exeter. I'm being yeah. On Beacon Street. Oh, that's right around the corner for me. Yes, it is. That's why I said that. Not that I know where you live and that I've been creeping or anything. But. <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> um, so, so you're an interesting cat, right? You went to a food court, and I was trying to figure out which one it was, being from Boston, like 1,300 fucking times. Yeah, the Prudential Center. I, uh, I used to eat in the food court there. They got rid of it and made it in Italy, but I was there so many times. Uh, I was the number one customer <laughs> at the... Uh, Sandwich shop there. So, yes, I was getting a lot of free sandwiches. Dude, why, why? Like, why do you go to a food court that many times? You know, when I'm not out researching books or writing books, I live a very simple, reclusive lifestyle. So I never leave the mall. I'm a mall dweller. So I'm basically in the mall all the time. So so you do sort of, sort of how do I say, track to that, um, uh, what's the word? That stereotype about writers being sort of reclusive. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? So you're a writer. You can help with these words. Um, yeah. I mean, half my life, it's, so it's like 50-50. So when I'm in sort of one phase of my life, I really am very much you know locked up and, and doing that. And then the other half of my life is traveling around following these crazy characters and, and the worlds they live in. Well, okay, why? Like, have you always been reclusive? Like, is this something you've, you've grown into because you get tasked <laughs> after research? Like, talk to me about that. No, I mean, I think it's, you know, uh, I think uh, you need a certain characteristic to be able to sit and, and write 400 pages in, in a shot. And so I think I've always kind of been the type of person who is comfortable in small enclosed spaces. <laughs> so I love the indoors. I love the inside. I like... Uh, you know, going up to the window and looking out, but it's, it's always been my thing. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's more who I am than the guy running around, you know, doing the crazy stuff, which I do half the time. But, um, no, when I'm not working on a project, I'm very sort of, you know, indoor and an indoor cat, as they say. Do you, do you have like your own like little writing area that's meticulous and has to be set up a certain way and you kind of go, like uh, it's not meticulous, but I do have an office, uh, separate from where I live and I have for a long time, but it's kind of in like a, you know, a skyscraper building kind of thing. Um, I've written in hotel rooms. I wrote bringing down the house, which was about the MIT blackjack team. And I wrote that in Vegas, staying in a different hotel every night for three weeks. 
Um, so I've written in all a variety of places, but anything that's sort of, you know, uh, a place where you can shut the windows and lock the door, that's where I write. Wow. So, so you, you don't necessarily have to have the same spot, but you need to be shut in. And do you really write the first draft in days or weeks? I do, but it remind you, I don't start the first draft until all the research is done. I have an outline that is very, you know, detailed. So I know every chapter in the book before I start writing. But when I start writing, I write the book in a matter of weeks um, from start to finish. So, so I'm definitely like, you know, a dive in type of writer, but I do all the work before I write so that there's nothing that stops me. So I, okay, so I kind of get this. So I've written two books, right? One, we don't need to worry about because it was just, it was, it was a simple structure. But I wrote this other one back here called Gap Selling. It's actually doing quite well. Not you're quite well, but you know, I mean, almost 20,000 copies in the first 10 months, 11 months for a business book. I'm happy with that, right? That's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, nowadays nobody reads books. So yeah, we're going to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about that. And, and here's the other thing, too no publisher would take my book. Hmm. Well, they it's a different that I was like, fuck you. I'll do it myself. And I yeah. got every single one of those. So those 20,000 books are sold without a single Barnes and Noble purchase. You know, they buy one for every store, yeah. 5,000 sales right off the bat. One person at a time through social media, internet or whatever. So every those publishers kiss my ass. They I mean, want- they, they would probably like to know how you do it because the publishing houses don't understand social media at all yet. Um, they don't know what they're doing with that world. So it's great, great that you've been able to do that. Oh, it's been awesome. It's been awesome. But anyway, this is about me. So, but where I was going with this is when I, I, I this idea of a, a, a outline which I really did because I tried it and it worked, but not as well as I'd like, but I'm sure it's where you're going. You do all your research, you get everything, you lay it all out. And then you do like, I'm going to butcher this, but then you do the, like the, the part one and the chapter and then the sub chapter and then another sub chapter right all the way down. I got Bitcoin right here. But, right. and so that by the time you get there, the book's almost, it's almost like a full skeleton with a little muscle on it. Right. Yeah, so absolutely. I mean, I actually go to the point where I know the page number of every chapter, beginning and end, and I don't even miss by a page when I write the book. But I mean, this is something I've developed over 20 books, um, so I didn't really start out that way. But at this point, I know how I work um, to the point where, yeah, it's a skeleton, but it's very specific, um, and I know what goes in each chapter, what dialogue, what what action. Um, so when I start writing, there's no break. Dude, that that's legit. <laughs> it's a... It's not fun necessarily, but that's the way it works for me. And uh, I definitely tell people who are starting out writing that as much as we all hate the outlining process, it makes the book so much better um, because cool. you don't get lost. You don't you don't break down anywhere. Dude, that is, I mean, dude, that's straight dope. That is amazing that you do that. So I want to come back to what you were saying before that quickly got a sidetrack, but I think is spot on. Do, what's up with readers today? Like people don't read, <laughs> like what? What's your two sick on this world of reading and people not reading and getting their shit together? Yeah, you know, here's the deal. We've gotten to a point where there's so much content. Um, there's television, streaming, there's video, there's the internet. Um, there's so much pulling at us all day long that a book is a commitment. You know, you don't sit down with a book and be done in 10 minutes. And that's how we live our lives now. So it's very hard for people to switch from all of this other media to books. So I do think we're seeing this total drop off in reading of books, which is very sad, you know, for my profession. <laughs> um, but uh, it's especially men. Uh, men, as a rule, pretty much read one book a year. 
um, which is a sad state of affairs. But the average guy picks up a book a year. Um, and it has to be something that they're, you know, interested in. They're not going to browse a bookstore. Um, women still do browse bookstores, but not as much as they used to. There's just way too much pulling at us. So, yeah, a book is a tough thing right now. And why do you think men don't read? Like, what, what is it about us other than the fact that we think we know freaking everything, et cetera? Yeah, you know, what's really interesting about guys, I've, I've looked into this a little bit because my wife and I just wrote a children's book. I saw that. I want to talk about that. That's out this week. And so that's actually aimed at young boys for the most part, because in the middle grade years, like seven to 13, boys read. They read a ton. They're always reading chapter books, like Hardy Boys when I was a kid. But nowadays it's like Dog Man and Diary of a Wimpy Kid. They buy millions of these books, right? And then at about age 13, 14, guys totally stop reading. They go into sports or watching sports and video games, playing and watching video games. And there's this weird shift. And girls don't really read that much between 7 and 12. And then starting at 13, 14, girls pick up reading and sort of never stop. So I think what happens with guys is they hit junior high, you know, middle school, junior high, and something just changes in the way they want to, you know, use their brain. Um, and I think video games and interactive stuff. And I really think there's a biological component to this. Mm-hmm. Um, to some extent, you know, they need more uh, mental stimulation to, to get into it. And so that's why sports and things that are action filled and things that are, Physical. you know, Physical. Right, I think there's a big, big thing to do with that. Um, and there's cultural things going on too. I mean, a guy who comes home from school at age 15 and sits in his room and reads, that's what I was like. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I was yeah, yeah. the most popular kid in high school, right? I mean, that's the direction that I went. Um, but I don't think there's a cultural and both cultural and biological reasons for this. What do you think the impact is going to be to society if we continue on this path? Anything, it's just like, it's just going to shift and it's going to be no big deal. And reading well, and, here's the thing, and I think you're an example of this as, as, and I'm learning too. It's not a necessarily a bad thing that we're now digesting our content in different ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, podcasting, um, streaming, all of the incredible television that's happening right now. These are incredibly popular. I mean, Game of Thrones had 10 million viewers a week. So people are still taking in stories. It's just a different way. And so I think one form is going to go. I mean, books are always going to be around, but they're not going to be the massive cultural moment that they used to be, a big book coming out, mm-hmm. as opposed to right now, it's a big television series. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, or a podcast now, that thing came out of nowhere and suddenly exploded into a whole industry. So people are still getting the content and they still want to hear stories. I mean, the most popular podcasts are these story podcasts, yeah. you know, these long running things. Yeah, that like the know. like the dude who got, um, what is it, who, who got falsely convicted. What is that one again? Yeah, uh, the, uh, uh, serial, serial was Yeah, Serial, yeah. yeah. Um, and so it's not that we're not getting these stories. We still want storytelling. Um, so I think if, if you're able to sort of be nimble on your feet as a writer, there's so much places right now for your content. Like we're in a golden age of television. I mean, this is a moment where there are so many streaming networks and so many cable networks. If you're a writer and you can write that sort of thing, it's it's a gold rush. Um, but the book business is definitely have to find its 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 soul. Um, so I, I look at a book as a platform to other things. So I won't sit down to write a book 
unless I think it could be a movie or a yeah. television show or something else. Um, and that's, that's, that's the way I'm dealing with the situation. I write the book. I love writing the book. I want everyone to read the book, but that's just one step in telling that story. So if they get, if they get your story through audio or through a podcast, or through a movie, you're just as happy. I'm absolutely happy. I mean, as, as long as I can make a living at it, I don't care how people consume my stories. I want it to reach the biggest audience it can. And I think that, you know, I've had to learn how to shift into this because when I started out, you know, I, this is, I've been doing this for 20 years. When I started out, when you got on an airplane, you couldn't bring a device, right? Yeah. So books, paperback books were huge. You know, you'd buy them in the airport, you'd ride on a plane with them, and then you'd even leave them on the plane. It was like a big deal. Yep. Now, of course, nobody does that. When's the last time you saw someone reading a book on an airplane? It just Other doesn't than me. Happen. Other than me. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So I had to shift with that. And so I'm now much more in television. I'm much more involved in in in, in the Hollywood stuff. Um, I still write the book, but I immediately look to where it can go in that world. You've slayed it. And I believe you've got a couple movie deals for future books. Like, I know you've done these two movies. I think you got another one. Is Wooly going to come out? Is that what I heard? Wooly, Wooly is at Fox, uh, 20th Century Fox, and they're developing that. My book, 37th Parallel, which was about UFOs, is at New Line. Um, but I think we're going to develop it as a television show. Um, I have a book. Well, Bitcoin Billionaires is going to be a feature. No way! No way, my boys! The yeah. Wikis are going to show up on t on in the movies again? That's the plan. I, ah, I, I, I'm working furiously to make that happen. I. I love the twins as as characters. They're incredible uh, uh, visual. You know, there's nothing. They're meant to be on the silver screen. Yeah. Yes. Right. And they haven't had their movie yet. You know, the no. social network, they were the side characters. They were the bad guys. They were they running around. rude in that movie, too. Around. Around. Yeah. Yeah. And we're in a different place now with them. So I'm excited about that. And also, I don't know if, uh, you know, I'm working on the TV show Billions now. Um, oh. I'm, I'm a producer and writer on that show. So I have been in the writer's room for the last nine weeks um, working on season five and I have an episode that's going to be in the new uh, season. So I'm learning, you know, how to be in a television room, which is, uh, which has been a lot of fun. Dude, that is smoke. So, all right, so I got a handful of questions. I want to finish one and move to another. So sure. without people reading, I want to tell you, I have this theory and so far every, every person I've told says I'm an idiot. I think I'm accurate. Now I, the timeline might make me an idiot, but I am convinced Barring, uh, what do you call that damn thing? Um, climate change, yeah. barring any nuclear, like, barring anything that sets us technologically back, you know what I'm saying? Barring anything of that, I'm arguing probably by the time my grandchildren of my age, but 100 years from now, people won't have to read. The yeah. idea of reading will be the idea of calligraphy or actually writing. And here's why. If the whole Amazon, I mean, Alexa do this, which we don't even have to say her name, right? Turn on the light, you know, open the refrigerator, start the oven, and then all of the listening to audio books. And then if they get speech to text nailed, so that instead of having to type, I can just sit there and say, hey, open email, do a text, for, uh, uh, you know, send Ben an email that says, hey, call me in the morning or about to go on. If our kids grow up like that, why do we have to read? I mean, you're right. It's all going to be... In ancient art, if things continue the direction they're going, um, you, you know, we didn't used to have books. We were an oral species. Everything was talking and telling stories, and we moved into writing, um, and maybe we are moving back in that direction. I, I think that that's an interesting way to look at it, you know? The only reason we wrote was, the only reason we wrote was to transport right. 
right? That was like, let, let nobody kid you. And I'm not trying to minimize the power of writing. I love writing, but we have to be real. We wrote to transport. I told you, you're like, well, I want to tell so-and-so, but I want to get it right, write that shit down so I can transport it. And then right. there was no way to transport language until now. And if I can do that on a digital file and over the way I can get it on the digital file without writing. And oh, by the way, you can get it off the digital file without writing. And the whole process is super easy and simple. Why do I need to write? You know, you, Why you, make, I need to read? you make a very good point because it isn't natural. You're right. There's nothing natural about sitting there and trying to figure out how to put your words down onto paper. You're translating it from one form of communication to another just to translate it back. Yep. Um, you know, you make a really good point. And uh, hopefully, uh, uh, you know, I won't be around for that, but I think you make a good point. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's good. All right. So I'm, I feel vindicated because everybody else thinks I'm an idiot. They're like, you know, you're fucking hot. I think, you know, you should write that down. You should be uh, putting that down <laughs> or, or saying it. You don't need to write it down. <laughs> right, right, exactly. I need to say it. <laughs> that was good. That was good. Um, all right. I, I want to give you a little props because – and I want to ask how you do this. Um, I, in true, full transparency, I hadn't read any of you. I saw your movie, uh, mm -hmm. the, the, the Social Network, yeah. right? And I'd heard about Breaking Vegas. Bringing but, uh, down the, I'm yeah. sorry? Well, the book is Bringing Down the House. And the bringing movie Down the House. Yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah. My bad, my bad. Yeah. Um, I heard about it, but my favorite writer for many years now has been Malcolm Gladwell. Oh, yeah. Right? And I love him because of how he tells stories in stuff that's usually not very story beneficial, if you will, right? It's like it's all kinds of facts and numbers, and he turns into amazing stories. Well, after reading Bitcoin, the whole way through, I was like, wow, this motherfucker can spin a story. Oh, that's kind of you. Thank you. How uh, do you do that? Like, how do you yeah. take – because you, you tell it, like, beyond just a story. Like, it's literally almost you take fact – and nonfiction and almost make me think it's not real. Right. Well, I didn't start off as a nonfiction writer. I was a thriller writer. My first six books were thr thrillers. They were sci-fi-y. I wrote for the X-Files. I was trying to write thrillers. Um, and what happened is I ran into the MIT Blackjack team at a bar and I started going to Vegas with them every weekend and I joined them and I became a member of the card counting team and then decided to tell their stories. So my first nonfiction book was actually my sixth book. Um, and that one became a big bestseller. And so I became a nonfiction writer. And so I decided that I would just keep writing the way I was writing, which is thrillers, but just take all of the true facts and, and tell it that way. And there are people who don't like that form of, uh, there's definitely journalists out there who don't like the way I do this. Um, so it's always kind of been a battle with, with critics because I really make it seem like a movie or seem yeah. like a thriller. Um, but that's the way I like to write because I do think you know it's a fun way to tell a story and especially a true story. And that's also why I've been able to sell so many projects to Hollywood is because they're not written like, you know, it's very easy to adapt my books into a movie. It's already kind of there. Um, so that's that's been a great thing for me. But yeah, I mean, everyone writes differently. And I think there's definitely different types of nonfiction out there. Some people like this format and some people like another one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay. Our video just froze, but hopefully it unfreeze here in a second. Yeah. Um, there is the rebellious piece right there, dog, right? Like, there's your rebellious piece. Like, fuck the critics, right? Like, if we <laughs> all did what the critics told us to do, everything would look exactly the same, would it not? Oh, yeah. Listen, my first review I ever got in the New York Times was right when I was writing fiction, and I got a full page in the New York Times, and the first line was, this is a bad book. <laughs> so I Ooh, that was a clusterfuck. 
<laughs> I had no idea what happened. It just stopped. And then Zuckerberg came after us. He's shutting us down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens when you mention the Winklevoss twins, you know? You yes. Amen. Good, good point. Uh, okay. So plus is we do that. We drop this on, as a podcast on, I, on iTunes and all the other stuff. So we will edit this out and fix it. For those of you watching live, we're sorry. I have no idea what happened. I think Ben is right. Um, Zucky is too busy trying to let political ads run and want to take us down. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right, where do we leave off? My bad. Uh, I think we were. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't remember. <laughs> we were in there. Oh, no, critics, critics, yeah. yeah, critics. I mean, listen. Sometimes they love my books. Sometimes they don't. I've had books that were massively critically acclaimed and didn't sell any copies, and books that they went after and sold millions of copies. So it's you know. People don't know, um, and there's a herd mentality in the critic world. As soon as one critic says something, every other critic has to say something along those lines. Um, so it's it's you know who cares? Uh, I think the important thing is whether you reach your fan, the people who like what you do. And I'm very clear about how I write my books. You know, right in the beginning, I basically say this is how I do this. You know, some of the dialogue is recreated. This is all based on real stuff. Every story in here is a true story. But um, I, I write it like a movie. And so if you want to watch my movie, you know, join in. <laughs> so you know what I like, what I really like about what you're saying here is, and I think the message for people listening, write for you first, right? Write for you. And if you write for you and you're true to you, then you'll have fans. Like you said, you write for your fans, right? Mm -hmm. And then and, and that they become you know, symbiotic. It's, if you write for other people, if you write for the critics first, you're not going to get anywhere, like you said. So just write for you. Do your own thing. Go with what you think is great. I mean, do you know how many people have told me I, I, I'm in the world of sales, right? I literally sell sales training, consulting, and recruiting to, you know, Fortune 500, uh, venture-backed startups, private equity. I, I swear like this. I wear my baseball hat. I wear my, you know, my red plaid shirt with my, my red plaid boobas and fat laces. And I'm like, if you – but I know my shit. Like, you know how to write. So if you don't want to hire me because of how I look, how I talk, I don't want to work with you anyway. So fuck exactly. off, right? I agree. I think there's a lot to be said about that. I think certainly in writing and, and, and in media, you have to be very confident in terms of what you feel like you bring to the table. Um, and if there's an audience for it, they will find it. Now, on, this, on the other side, if what you want to do is poetry, if what you want to do is something that isn't going to have a mass audience, you have to accept that. Um, you can't force things down people's throat. So trying to to write something that everyone wants to read is tricky, um, but it starts with you having confidence in it and not being dissuaded because so many people are going to try and stand in your way. You know, there's so many walls to climb over. Every time you send something out, it's going to get rejected. Traditional publishers are going to stand in the way. Social media is going to be hard to reach anybody. Trying to make something go viral, I don't know how to do it. It's, it's like, you know, there's so many walls. So you have to write something that you're happy with, but hopefully that's something that has commercial value. Everybody listening, yeah. everybody listening, just do you, and right. if you is good enough, it will get through. And if you is not, keep doing you until you get through. Yeah, do, do it as you love. I mean, don't don't be like I tell young writers this all the time. You know, give yourself a time limit. Like, don't say I'm going to spend my whole life trying to write a book. If ten years go by, you can still write that book. But you have to also make a living. I don't want people to, you know, be out on the street starving. You have to understand that it's very hard to break into these fields. This, if this is your dream, then do it. Do it as hard as you can. This is what you do. 
but be rational and understand that if you, you have to pivot, you know, that's the thing in the internet world. If you're doing a company and, and, the, and the audience doesn't come for it, you got to pivot and do something else. If you're writing a thriller and nobody's coming to your thrillers, try and write something else. Try and find a way to do what you love to do that also reaches a big audience. Um, I'm all about a commercial audience. Yep. Like, I mean, you, know, you being in sales understand this, but I want as many people to read this as possible. I'm not doing poetry. I'm not you know, trying to write the great American novel. I'm trying to write a book that a million people read every time. And so that is a, a game in itself. It's true. And I think you said something. So, so break this down for me. What do you think? So I think one of the things we've done is shift this into this world where you can actually do what you want to do and you're already it. So when so when you I think you're and I about the same age, aren't you like 49, 50, something like that? 50, yeah. Oh yeah, so 51. So we're the same age. We're at high school together and everything. Who knows? Maybe we even pass each other walking the streets of Beantown. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. And so back in the day when we grew up, if you wanted to be a writer, you basically needed a publisher. Right, just there was no and an agent and all kinds of other shit. Right? There was no other way. There was no such thing as the internet. Yes, there was, nobody would read. You could print it on a piece of paper and hand it out. <laughs> that so would be the best you could do. Right. But same thing with acting and modeling and and pretty much um, music, anything, right? Anything like yeah. arts or not. And so what I tell people now is is and a lot of people aren't getting this, and I'm trying to tell parents to get this through the head. And I'm trying to tell kids to get this through the head, with very few exceptions. If you want to be it. Do it, and you're it. Yeah. If you really want to be a writer, fucking start writing. Literally, get on a blog. Forget about a, a book. This isn't like the old days. Like it's like the old days of computer um, writing. You wrote the whole application, then you dropped it. Now right. you get little tiny chunks, right? Same thing here. If you want to be a writer, get on a blog and start writing every day. And then whether ten people read it or ten million, you're a writer. Yeah. You're a writer. If you want to be an actress. Then what you do is start acting on Instagram or start acting on Facebook. And you're, a, you're an actress. Now, yeah. are you a popular one? Are you a famous one? No. Right. But if you truly love the craft, right. that's what you want to do, you can be one like that. Right. You're a director, get your buddies around, direct a film, drop that show. You're a director. But people think in their head somehow they're not it until they're paid for it. Right. And so what I say is you don't want to be it. You want the end result. You want to be famous or you want to be something else. You want to be a writer. You want to be famous. You want to be a model. You want a million views. You don't want to be a, a, um, a musician. You want to be on stage with people yelling and screaming your name. Those are two very different things, right? I mean, I think you're absolutely right. You know, there, it's, uh, it's absolutely true that we're at a point in time right now where the doors are more open than they've ever been historically. I mean, this is a moment where anybody anywhere can put something out there and a million people could see it. Yep. The problem is, is that everyone can put something out there. And so it's, it's this free for all. So how you break through is actually harder in some ways than it was when I was doing it. So when, when I was growing up and you were growing up, if you wrote a book and you managed to get a publisher to accept it, you kind of were there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. While now the gatekeepers no longer have control. So it's open for everybody, but it's also really competitive for everybody. Mm -hmm. So it's a really interesting point. You're absolutely right. You can be a writer or an actor or a model tomorrow. I mean, you really don't have to go through everything. But if you want to be paid for it, it's as hard as it ever was. So that's the interesting thing. 
So if your art is what's important to you, you're at a best time in history. But if you want to be paid for your art, we're still right where we always were, which is that you have to put in the work, you have to be great, and you have to get lucky. I mean, I do think there's a big luck component in all of it. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, I look at moments in my own career and it could have gone the other way <laughs> at any point, right? Yeah. Uh, I was determined that it wouldn't, but there's a lot of people out there who have incredible talents who just don't get lucky. And so, you know, you have to, you have to keep an optimistic view about everything, I think. I think, look, getting paid and defining how much we get paid, I think is up in the air. Now, Time will tell if I'm right on this, but I don't think most people will take me up on it. What the key to today is, besides being really good, but I believe in anything, and we want to steal Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours, this plays a role in it, but the key to success today in your craft, yes, it, it, it's more people writing it, and, it, and it's, there's more people there, but here's the one thing most people aren't doing. Time. Time. I am willing to bet you, bet you if you give me nine um, writers from take – uh, or 10 writers from 10 different schools, all the same age, and I tell them all that you have to write a blog post three days a week and not stop, right? Yeah. I'm going to bet you that all not, nine out of 10 of those people will have some size of sizable audience that they can monetize. Now, whether or not they're millions of dollars and they're retiring or it's enough to just, you know, 100 grand a year, 90 grand a year, and that goes with any opportunity that shoots off of it. Right, but yeah. I promise you, if they do that for three, four, five, six, seven, you'll never stop. Just do it every single day. I promise you, Ben. Every single one of them will have enough opportunities to monetize over time. The problem wow. is most people stop after six months or a year, and they're like, "It's not working." Yeah, that's good. I mean, that's that's awesome. That's an awesome thing to hear. Really, I think you're right. I mean, I don't know. I don't know that world that well, but it, there really is, you know. Um, you don't, you can't stop. I mean, I totally agree with you that most people, similarly in the book world, if, if I went to 20 people and said, all right, write a book, you know, 19 of them aren't going to be able to write a book. Yeah. And it's not because they don't have the ability to, it's because you got to sit in a room for months on end writing five pages a day, which is pretty miserable, yeah. even if you're good at it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you're right. You gotta you gotta be willing to do that to get there. There's no overnight successes in any business, really. Yeah. Um, there's nobody just walks in the next day unless you win the lottery and is suddenly super successful. So you're right. I mean, that's an interesting point. And you know, you probably know a lot more about this than I do. I mean, the the blogging world, the podcast world, people are making great livings in this world, um, and just by putting in the work. I think. Yeah. I started. So I, a lot of people know this. A lot of people don't. I started a sales guy, the name of my company, um, after I started blogging. So I started blogging in 2009, and I blogged every single day for 712 days. You can do the math, right? That is two years, right? And I always say before anybody knew who I was. Now, if you go back and look at my numbers, and, and I, I should do this because it's always motivating. I think the first month, I got like 80 views in a month. You know what I'm saying? And the next month, I got maybe 92. And the next, I got maybe 100. And the next, 120. But as you kept, if I kept doing that, eventually I think I was getting to like 20,000 views, 20, views a day, I guess, or a month. I can't remember. But I started getting a lot of views is the bottom line. And then all of a sudden someone noticed me and they said, hey, and they listed me as one of the top sales blogs. And then that someone saw that and they came out and read it. And then someone else said, hey, here's a top sales influencer. And by two years in, 
all of a sudden, everybody was saying a sales guy's the best blog and Keenan's this and he's that. And I decided to start a, a consulting company out of that. And then from the consulting company, I worked with people and kept doing what I was doing. And my point is this. There are 7 billion people in this world, right? How do you get to those 7 billion is really is immaterial. So if all of a sudden I have 10 readers and one of those readers tells 10 people and one of them comes and reads, now I've got 11. And then right. two people tell them later. And I think that's what happens to me. And I think anybody else who sticks with it, to get a million out of 7 billion could take you five or six or seven years. But as long as you keep going and keep developing and keep adding value, you will get your 600,000 followers or viewers. You'll get it all. You will. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's great. I think that's, 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 I love it. I love your optimism. <laughs> I think it's awesome. It's good. It's good. Okay. Talk to me about what it's like to do these movies. Yeah. I mean, I've had two experiences where movies actually got made. So 21 um, was an incredible ride. It was, you know, a very young cast. Um, and we shot it here in Boston, which was a lot of fun and in Vegas. Um, so it was an incredible experience that, that, that movie um, was my first sort of entrance into that world. And then the social network was a totally different animal because the social network was, you know, Aaron Sorkin and David Fincher. And it was like these really intense personalities and it, it, it became this massive Oscar movie. So I've kind of had the two different experiences, the commercial, you know, flashy film that was aimed at 21 year olds. Um, and then the social network, which was kind of this adult film, uh, is the wrong word, but it's that <laughs> winning, uh, winning Oscars and, and, and that kind of acclaim. And so, it was amazing. Both of them were amazing to be involved with. Um, and, uh, you know, they happened out of, out, out of just uh, luck and, and being in the right place at the right time and the right story at the right time, I think. Well, if you told a great story, and there are a few people that argue Sorkin isn't one of the great storytellers. So I clearly. Well, I think Aaron Sorkin is amazing. So what happened with that is I had written, Eduardo had come to me. Um, I had gotten an email out of the blue at two in the morning from a Harvard senior who said, my best friend founded Facebook and no one's ever heard of it. And I went out for a drink and in walked Eduardo Saverin, never spoken to anybody. He was in the midst of this massive lawsuit with Facebook. And he proceeded to tell me this crazy story just to get me to scare Zuckerberg. He didn't actually want me to write a book, but he wanted Zuckerberg to settle with him in his lawsuit. Smart kid. So I thought this was a great idea. I ended up contacting the Winklevoss twins over Facebook. Um, I found Dan Parker uh, over email and I started writing a book proposal and I wrote a 14 page book proposal, which leaked onto the internet, a website called Gawker printed my whole book proposal. So that day, all these crazy things happened. Facebook settled with Eduardo for $5 billion. And the settlement agreement said you may never speak to Ben Mesrick again because they were trying to stop this book from happening. Yeah. So he, he cut off all contact with me. He sent me a legal restraining order. He broke up with his girlfriend because he was dating my wife's best friend. And then he moved to Singapore, never to be heard from again. Wow. Um, which I understand, you know, for $5 billion, it's a lot of money. A lot of money. Our parents wouldn't talk to me anymore for $5 billion. Um, and, then, uh, and then that same day, Aaron Sorkin read this online. And called me up and said, I want to write this as my next movie. And oh, David Fincher called and said, I want to direct this as my next movie. And this was this incredible moment. But I hadn't actually written the book yet. So I locked myself in a hotel room in Boston. And I wrote the book in about 12 weeks. And uh, Sorkin came to Boston. And I was handing him chapters as I went. And it was just this crazy process. The movie came out within a year, which is completely <sighs> insane for Hollywood. Um, so the hardcover book came out. Then the movie came out, you know. 
a few months apart. Um, it was just this crazy moment in my life. And it was a phenomenal script. Aaron Sorkin is a brilliant screenwriter. Um, and he's, uh, you know, what he did with that, I think it's it, it very close to the book. Um, so I think if you read the book, you kind of knew what was in the movie. If you saw the movie, you kind of know what's in the book. Um, but it was just this wild experience where it just it got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And, um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg had to respond to it. He went on Saturday Night Live. He was on the cover of Time magazine. Um, it became this whole big thing, um, this ride that I've been on for a, for a, for a decade now. Um, yeah, but you, you penetrated the American like the American culture, like your book, Penetrate. Yeah. And it was the first of its kind. You know, yes. since then, there's been the Uber book, there's been the Twitter book, there's been all of, you could say, Bad Blood about Theranos. All of these books came after the social network. You're the social right. network broke ground in how to tell uh, an entrepreneurial Silicon Valley story because it was all about the drama. It didn't matter that it was Facebook. You know, when I first pitched it, um, my, one of my first readers was Kevin Spacey, actually, because Kevin Spacey had done the movie 21. And Kevin, you know, and his people were like, you know, I don't know if I see a movie, <laughs> right? They ended up being producers on it, which was incredible. But yeah. you, if you just said Facebook, you know, that doesn't sound like a good movie. But when you talk about Zuckerberg and his sort of duplicitousness and the battle with the Winklevoss twins and all of the people who got screwed along the way, that's the story. Yes. And so, you yeah. know, I think what Sorkin did very smartly is call it the social network. Yeah. You know, it, it didn't matter what it was. Um, it was about a moment in time. And so I think that that's the way all of these stories have been written since then. And uh, and some of them have been very good. And and, and uh, so it's great. It's awesome. Well, here's, here's the cool part that may or may not, you may or may not have missed. If you were to say it's about Facebook today, that's going to get people's attention. Right. Like you, it, It's funny. If you had said Facebook that back then, society hadn't really caught up to this concept of, the, the new in, the new information age. No, I don't say information. This new world of the internet, the new world of social media, the, the whole new world of a connected society. They didn't caught up yet. Most yeah. people who were doing it, most people who were writing the movie, like they're, they're old, right? They just didn't get it. it. It was it was transitioning, and they hadn't caught up. You found this story. You were able to like show what was going on. Then smart people like Sorkin jumped on it, and then the rest of it was like, "Oh, this is cool shit." And now you say Facebook now, you say Uber now, and everybody right. speaks. So now it's all on you, man. Like you, you uh, made what wasn't there there. Yeah, and you know what's interesting is you don't, you can't guess these things. People always ask me, what's the next big thing to write about? And you really can't know. I mean, Michael Crichton was a genius at this. Yeah. Michael, you know, he would write about something and suddenly it would be the big story. Um, but it was always happenstance. It, it's very hard to look at the world and say, this is going to happen three years from now and going to be the big story. Um, so I didn't really know that this would become such a big thing when I wrote that story. I think I have a knack for, for doing that by mistake, <laughs> sort of falling no mistake, as no origin story. Um, and the Bitcoin billionaires, I think, is similar in that I, I think I'm telling the origin story of something very important, um, be it Bitcoin, the Winklevoss twins, crypto. Like there is a moment happening um, that I think I'm on the pathway for, um, but you never know. You don't know when you sit down to write these stories because it takes a year and then it takes another year for a movie. So you're really looking a couple of years ahead when you sit down to write a story like this. Well, look, in this one, you've, you've got the hapless idiot, which is which makes the story. Like how many times I wanted to reach in and literally punch 
Charlie, right? Charlie. Yeah, Charlie. Yeah. You fucking idiot. It was yeah, like, so Charlie. Listen, I have big. I love Charlie as a person. I, I think Charlie is a really nice, super smart, screwed up kid mm-hmm. who was in his mother's basement, came from a very tough background, was disowned by his family for falling in love with a girl who wasn't of his faith. Yeah, yeah. Um, was just looking for a way out, and he stumbles into the world of Bitcoin. He builds an incredible company with the help of the Winklevoss twins. Mm-hmm. And the Winklevoss twins are trying to guide him. Yeah. Over and over again, they're trying to say, you have to be professional. You know, you can smoke pot, but you can't live above a club and smoke pot and then walk into a meeting. You know, it it was that. You can't ignore ignore the um, the, the laws of the land or or the requirements. He ended up breaking an important law, which is he he allowed people to buy Bitcoin from his company and use it to buy drugs on Silk Road. Because he was being pulled by these libertarian influences, these people who started Bitcoin. The world of Bitcoin was started by these anarchistic libertarians who believe that drugs should be legal, who believe that military shouldn't exist, who believe that it should be a free-for-all. And and that's a compelling point of view also, politically. Uh, Charlie was caught in the middle, and he went the wrong way. And the U.S. government didn't take that lightly, and he went to jail for a couple of years. Um, but, you know, it's a great moral story in that you have a kid in the middle, and he was young, 19 years old or whatever. He was just pulled to something that was very attractive to him, um, which was this ideology that Bitcoin is supposed to be about freedom. It's supposed to be about no borders, no banks, no governments. And that's true. That's part of what Bitcoin is. But you live in the United States, you gotta follow the laws. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean it was it was great. I think what you do really well in all your stories is you find you really find characters that, that are very defined in, in that drive emotion. Whether it was hating um, hating Zuckerberg, or some people which I still couldn't understand hating um, the twins, which I still didn't get. Um, well, Sorkin made him look like not the best in the world. But well, I mean, the twins are going to be polarizing characters because of who they are, because of the way they look, because of where they come from. Um, they come into that story as uh, the establishment. When you watch Social Network, mm-hmm. they represented the guys in suits, the establishment, and Zuckerberg was this lovable nerd, <laughs> right? Yeah, he was I mean, lovable. Shit out of yes, but changed. You know, who yeah. Zuckerberg is definitely changed. And who the twins are definitely changed. And I got them wrong, I think, in Accidental Billionaires. I think they were much more than the way they were drawn in that movie. Um, and I think you find that out later on if you read Bitcoin Billionaires, um, that they didn't stumble into Bitcoin by mistake. I mean, these are guys who oh, saw the value of it before anybody else did. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, yes, I definitely look for characters that have a real passion, that are driven that are breaking the rules um, and that you either love or you hate yeah. because that's what makes it interesting. You're good at that. Did I ever tell you how I met the, the twins? No. <laughs> I don't even think they know this. I mean, they know how we met, obviously. But we, we do this. We, I do this uh, ski camp uh, off, usually every year, but I take a few years off, up in Whistler. It's a mobile's camp in the summertime. And um, uh, I had been three or four seasons. So, you know, when you do something like that, you usually know over half the people, a lot of them return. And then every year, a few people pop in and pop out. And this one particular year, I was sitting up there with a bunch of the guys I knew, a bunch of the instructors, blah, blah, blah. And there are two identical twins that are like 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, and I think of me and the funny guy. And I'm like, look at the two freaking Winklevoss twins. Right? Really like <laughs> two tall, you know, two tall, identical twins. And right. the camp leads over and he goes, hey, Keenan, 
that's the week of our dreams. Like, yeah, I was just being funny, guy. That's so funny. I introduced myself, and, and we totally connected, hooked up. But it was, it was, it was funny. But that was totally just making fun of two tall twins. I mean, that's great. They're great guys, but that sounds awesome. You guys are very uh, out there in the snow doing moguls and stuff. I, I would not survive. <laughs> but oh, that's no, I, mean, I could get yeah. you. Yeah, right. I'd be uh, hanging on to a rope on the back of somebody's ski. But, yeah, uh, that's awesome. Now they're really, really interesting guys. You know, when I when I reconnected with them to write this story, I didn't know how how they were gonna, you know, take it because the movie had presented them in such a way. Um, but I always really felt that they were very strong characters, and their beliefs in right and wrong were something that I always really respected. And in terms of writing the social network, they were the guys that never lied. You know, you may not agree with them, but they don't lie. Yeah. Everything straightforward. And the worst crime you can do in their eyes is lie, is, yes. is, is try and trick somebody, is betrayal. And so that's why betrayal is a big theme in both of the books, yeah. Dude, it's awesome. All right, so let's shift. Thinking, when we talk about betrayal and we're talking about lying, what do you think about what's going on in the world today? Seems like one hell of a story well, that I think we ever thought. They said the you know, I mean the political world? Yeah. So I try and stay out of politics in every way I can. Um, I'm not a writer who wants to just dive into a place where every other writer is. Mm -hmm. And right now, this next year is just out of control. I mean, on both sides, people are going to be writing book after book after book, uh, poorly sourced, <laughs> that are going to throw them out onto the world because that's what everyone is consuming right now. Um, and it's a tricky time to tell any other stories because it's swallowing up all of the oxygen in the room. Mm -hmm. You can't get on morning shows anymore unless you're talking politics. You can't get on cable shows anymore unless you're talking politics and so i mean i don't have a specific take that is unique enough to dive into that fray right now um but i don't know we're in a crazy world right now you know it's it's a uh, every day there's another big news story on either side and it's just sort of building on itself um it's this like animal that just feeding on itself basically and i think for the next year that's the way it's going to be do you think we'll ever get out do you think we I think people will get tired of it, I would think. At some point, it's just going to be uh, an overload of the senses, and you're going to be like, all right, let's just get back to the real world now. <laughs> Enough of this already. I think after the next election, we'll see. I mean, who knows how that's going to go? I have no idea how that's going to go. But after that election, hopefully, the, the need for stories about this will calm down. Um, but who knows? I mean, I think we've got another year of this at least. It's going to come to a head next November. I don't think there's any way around that. But don't you think that half the reason it's so much news, and this is why I get, look, I'm not afraid to say it, why I get so frustrated with, with the right is it's, yeah, okay, Trump tweets stupid shit, and yeah, Nancy Pelosi does weird stuff, or people like what Warren, Elizabeth Warren says, but really, at the end of the day, is it really, the reason we talk about so much of this is the whole, it feels like the whole system is at risk or under attack. Not the individual politicians, but the underlying structure and system. And everybody feels that if they lose, their view of the system loses. And if well, I think that there's definitely a feeling on both sides that we're at this incredibly sky is falling moment one way or the other. Um, I don't really succumb to that. You know, I, I feel like it's the media is, is building this up because that's what sells mm -hmm. and we're consuming it. And that is a self-replicating process. Nobody wants to go on TV right now and say, ah, it's all fine because nobody will watch that. Yeah. Right. 
But if you go on TV screaming and yelling that the end of the world is coming, people will watch that. So the media has a vested interest in building every story up into the end of times. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're not, it's, it's not different than people on the street corner with a sign saying the sky is falling, but it's done via all of the media. And so both the left and the right have a vested interest in turning this into a life, uh, a, a big moment. So I do think there's something going on to that extent. I mean, really, day to day, how has your life changed? Now that's a great question. And day to day, has it really? Of course not. But here's so what's as soon as it was five years ago, day to day. Yeah. Most people, not yeah. for everybody. Listen, yeah. some people are dealing with hellish problems as they were five years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, everyone's dealing with their own personal hell all the time. <laughs> the world is made that way. Yes. We're all dealing with a lot of crap. But the reality is the building this up to this moment, a lot of it has to do with, with the media trying to make money um, on both sides. And listen, I'm a member of the media, so I understand it. I get a call to go on CNBC whenever Zuckerberg does something because they want me to talk about Zuckerberg. And if I go on there and say, yeah, it's no big deal, I don't get invited back, <laughs> right? But if I go on there and scream and yell about it, then I get invited back. And so that is the system that we live in. So uh, listen, I think that this is all going to come to a head. I think that it's, I don't think it's the end of times. I really don't. But my parents do. So there you go. My, you know, everyone has a different opinion about it. Um, I read the news just like everybody else. And it's crazy. And it's insane. And, and um, you know, we elected a reality star president, and yeah. that's what you get. you're going to get a reality show, and this reality show is getting the viewers. It's the most successful season of The Apprentice ever. Going yeah, on. Amen. It's, it's going to get hundreds of millions of views every day, and uh, and as the media realizes that, they they lean into it. Um, both sides, everyone's leaning into it. The New York Times is leaning into it. The Wall Street Journal is leaning into it. Fox is leaning into it. MSNBC is leaning into it. That's where the eyeballs are, and that's the system we're developing. So it's not so much politics as it is media. I really do believe that. I love the media. I think they they do great job, but it's a money making enterprise. Yes, and this is where the money is coming in. Yeah, you know, I'm fifty fifty. I'm literally on the edge. Whether I, like, I, and this is I'm not actually kidding. Whether I go buy a freaking AR freaking fifteen and I hand it out and lock it in my basement in something and for use out like break if needed. Or like, don't even worry about it. But see, I well, so I, I think you're Jewish, right? I am. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, there was you just launched a book on or the Charles book on Jewish National Jewish Week or something. What was that? Uh, so I wrote the book is not it's not about Judaism or anything like that. But I spoke at the Atlanta Jewish Center of Atlanta. So okay. um, I was invited to their festival. Um, so that's where I launched the book. Yeah. So 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 you may or may not have this purview, but I'm a brother. You haven't figured that out, right? Some people think I'm from India, but no, I'm a brother. My mom was white, my dad was black, but whatever. You know, like I've been called nigger enough to know that people see me as black, right? So, but I'm also a poli sci major. I'm a history buff, and and uh, 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 U.S. Constitution wonk. Like I don't claim that I'm an expert in the Constitution, but I know enough about it and how things progress. And what I've learned is almost nothing, with few exceptions, very little happens in the pot when the government's going on. It's what happens in someone else's pot. So when I was born in 1968, my dad was 30 years old, right? That means he was born in 38. 
Okay, think about what he had to do to, as a black man to get from 38 to 68, right? And then right. he was stupid enough to mess with a white woman down south. I mean, that's a whole different story, right? Dumbass. <laughs> he's lucky he's still alive, right? But I think right. So he has me. Well, I'm the first generation black person with all their rights. I yeah. never really think about that. Like, like, yeah, I had all my rights from the day I was born, but now my parents didn't like anybody before that. So here's my point, though. It was the law in 68 that allowed me to do what I'm doing today and get hired in Alabama or get hired in North Carolina or get hired in Boston, whatever, and no one really think anything of it. So right. it's not what's happening today. It's I'm asking the question, what is happening today that could become the norm or become embedded in our fabric that will have downstream effects? And I read an amazing article the other day, and I'll send it to you if I can find it, where this gentleman, uh, a poli-sci professor or something, said the things we're fighting over now are not policy. The things we're fighting on now are fundamental elements in the construct of our governments, right? And therefore, if you lose one, depending on where it goes, the downstream effect. So if we decide, I'm staying completely out of the impeachment because I'm not watching it enough, but if we decide, for whatever reason, that what Trump did with Ukraine is normal policy, that if a Democrat gets in there and does that, there's no backup anymore. Mm. So what happens to four, six, eight presidents down the road who this becomes the norm? And I was like, that's where I stopped getting nervous, is we right. say they're fighting not over policy, but they're fighting over the structure. And that is the, is the piece that's different. Well, I mean, I agree. You're absolutely right in that, in that, you know, this is the first sort of warning shot about democracy on both sides. Yes. Uh, I think that the terror that we're feeling is that we're showing the seams, the sort of breaks in how democracy can end up if people are led in a direction um, either side. I, I do think that this is the problem with democracy, um, is that the mass votes and you don't necessarily want Every, I mean, you know where I'm going with this. But, I do, I do, I do. I mean, have you watched what's the most popular shows on television? Yes, I do. Choose those shows are going to choose your president. Yes. And so whenever there's these get out the vote things and they're like, everybody vote. I don't know that I really want everybody to vote. As someone who travels a lot, and you probably do. Yep. been all over the country. There's some people who probably shouldn't vote, <laughs> you know, and that's that's a scary thought. So I think this is, you know, Tocqueville, the Tocqueville wrote this a long time ago, that democracies always tend towards a demagogue. Democracies always fail because they always end up in a tyranny. That's the nature of the beast. <laughs> if you allow more and more people to vote mm -hmm. and you get more and more people to choose, eventually a charismatic person gets up there and speaks to our worst instincts yeah and that's who becomes president no, I once they take the power and right. move it to, to build up yeah right i think the reality is that a television i mean a president shouldn't have as much power as he does because it's going to be a, a television president now we live in the age of of this mm -hmm. so it's always going to be a trump or an oprah or a or this or that which will sometimes be good and sometimes be bad but it's going to be the most popular person. When we get on an airplane, we don't have a popular vote on who flies the plane, right? We, yep. we don't want, when you go to surgery, you're not going to vote on your surgeon. You yep. want the best person available. And the system is not set up to pick the best person available. It's to pick the most popular person available. And I think that that is tricky. So listen, you're, these are big questions. 
and you're right. I'm more fearful about what's going on in Europe, in in the rest of the world. Um, these right wing kind of situations going on, which can get very dangerous very quickly. Yeah. Um, but you're right. You know, listen, I'm optimistic. I really feel like, for the most part, most people are inherently good. The majority of people want a good country here, sure. and they came here to have a good country. Most of us are immigrants or, or families of immigrants. Yeah. Where none of us are here from the Mayflower, you know, almost yeah. none of us. Yeah, yeah. But we all want a country where we can all live happily. How we get there is always a question. So I feel like these are blips. But I'm I come from a place, you know, of luck and, and privilege in a world where I was happy all the time. So it's easy for me to be optimistic. Um, my parents, who come from, as uh, you said, I'm Jewish, come from a very different time period where, you know, they're the only remaining members of their families. Um, hey, wait, Kirk, time out. Your grandparents were in... My, my grandparents on either side escaped the Holocaust. Oh, okay. So okay. both sides of the family, you know, one person gets out and nobody else gets out. So my parents grew up traumatized by their parents' experiences. Yeah. So they get very fearful, obviously, when they see a world l moving in that direction because they know how it went for their families. Um, and uh, I think that's inherent in every Jewish person. Every Jewish person deep down is always thinking, okay, do we run now? <laughs> <Is Yeah>. it, <laughs> you know, there's always that moment where you got to run. You got to get out of there. Um, you, you gotta create a T-shirt that says right. "Run now." <laughs> Run now. It's like, yeah, no. Uh, so, but I grew up in a privileged situation where I didn't grow up with that stuff, so I'm less mm -hmm. uh, skittish. I'm less traumatized by by that. So, you know, I don't see the warning signs that some people are seeing. I think, yeah, listen, it's a blip. We're having an exciting time. It's crazy. Everything will get back to regular scheduled programming in about a year, if not four years. <laughs> yeah. That's the way I look at it. And then we'll, you know what? We'll have some things we got to fix. Some things we'll like, some things we won't like. Look, the stock market is doing great. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's rich people everywhere. Yay. So maybe some things we leave, some things we fix. So I'm not, I think our bigger issues are global warming. It is the, is the environment is uh, things like that are a bigger deal to me than the political situation. But we do have a president, we do actually have a president who stood up less than a couple of weeks ago, which this is blows my mind. See, everybody asks me when you're, you hate Trump, you're, you're against Trump. No, I'm not against Trump. I'm more scared, to your point, I'm trying to lose a lot of followers in this one, but oh well. I'm more scared about the followers. Because Trump can't do anything without followers. And here's a man who stood up, not only a month through two weeks ago, and said, in two years, next year, and then four years, and maybe eight years, and maybe 12 years, he literally kept saying, Maybe he won't leave office after he got past eight years. And right. I, like, let's keep it real. Had any Democrat had ever said anything like that, the entire right probably would have gone into mutiny. But right. it was a blip. Right. So really but, let's be fair. Trump says whatever the hell he's thinking at every moment. So I, I this is how I have my dad all the time. I don't take anything he says at all as a statement of any value. Because action of his people—that's what scares me. Not, yeah, not again. I say there's always going to be a percentage of people who are just horrible, and and that's just the world we live in. And and so yes, the troubling thing about the moment we're in is that a lot of people's basic base instincts are coming out. Yes, um, but they were already there, <laughs> you know. True. So is it better that they're out in the open or that they're hidden? That's a question that I always ask. I mean, you know, I, I go on Twitter, and Twitter is just this 
I love Twitter because so many good things have happened out of it for me. I mean, I'm on the show Billions because of Twitter, because wow. Brian Koppelman saw me on Twitter and we got together on Twitter. But at the same time, the most base instincts of humanity is coming out on Twitter. You know, the posts, the negative, the dark corners of the internet, you're free to say whatever you want. And people just say horrible things oh, to each other all the time. Shit. But that stuff was already there. So maybe it's better that we're seeing it and we know, okay, there's just going to be people out there who just are racist. And They're going to be people, yes. But as long as people... Yeah. Yes, but what it feels like is you get a really shitty uh, cat ball or lint ball and it seems to be getting bigger as opposed to, ooh, get that out of the house. It seems like getting all the other lint balls in the house. The next thing you know, it's taking up the living room. You can't get rid of it. Well, I just feel like if you get rid of sort of the anonymity of it, I think it's not a bad thing. If you know who's making these horrible statements, um, either they're going to have have to be rational and not make those statements, or, you know, you understand the playing field. Um, I, I think that, you know, there's some value in understanding the world we actually live in and not the world we want to be living in. Um, so that's the way I look at it. But look, I, I get it. It's incredibly polarizing because um, I know a lot of very sensible, smart, successful people who are supporting the mm. current Mr. Trump yeah. and because of different things entirely. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's a tricky situation for me as someone who's really not a political person at all. And I'm I don't mind it at all. I just think that I get what both sides are. I get what everyone is saying. I don't think they're equivalent, but I get it. I get why some people are saying, you know, I care more about this um, and less about that. But then I also get why someone else would say, well, that's horrible. You got to care about that. Um, and so, I, you know, it's, it's very hard. I really think that in the end, you know, we'll get to a point where the rational people will will overcome. <laughs> um, and that's that we hope for that moment. But if it doesn't, I think the rational people can't, you know, burn the system down trying to fix it. Fix and that's, that's my problem is I just don't like it when it elevates to that. And I get that that in itself can be controversial to say, but I really feel like it gets us nowhere. Um, burning a system down never fixes the system. So you have um, kids, right? You have kids. Yeah, kids. And, and they, I... I look at their generation. And they're and it, mixed, right? Your kids are mixed. Yeah, my kids are mixed, but their generation doesn't give a shit. No. About right now. Stuff, which right is now. incredible. It's as they get older that those sort of tribalism and all that stuff comes into play. At the ages they're at, they all love each other, you know? And it, and the things that matter are, are none of that stuff matters. And I think that's so great looking at them. And I think they are growing up in a world where they're going to get so much more information by the age of 14 than I had by the age of 30, right? <laughs> they're, they're getting so much information continuously that they're going to be able to sort of hopefully see the world in a much broader way than we did growing up. And I think that's a good thing. But at the same time, I look at the stuff going on, on the internet, Facebook and Instagram and all that. And I wonder how warping that is going to be. Um, it's going to be really a weird situation. We have no way to, to decide how this is going to pan out. Um, but I definitely do think we're in a situation right now where the president should not, I think it should be a, uh, it should be a, a figurehead. I really do. I think that we should have our state representatives, uh, people who are on the local level 
and that the president is a is a is a charismatic person who has no power. Or, um, or what about a parliamentary system where that yeah, person's yeah. power, but you have to create coalitions and yeah. you, know, you, you don't need, we don't need a we don't need a king, right? We don't want a king, mm-hmm. so we shouldn't vote for a king. Uh, we should be voting for a guy who gets up there or a girl who gets up there and and you know tells stories and makes us all feel good. That's great. That should be their job. Like they should be like Prince Harry, you know. <laughs> They should marry uh, some movie star and and throw charity functions and and walk around uh, with big dogs, corgis, and and that should be the president. And we should all love the president because they don't have any power. So I think that's trust, right. You don't trust the really. What you're saying is you don't trust the the um, the checks and balances. You don't trust the executive. No, I don't think it. I think the executive branch is a dangerous thing. I really do. I don't know why there is a person in charge of anything. I thought we wanted not to have that. I think that was the whole point of America is we didn't want a king, right? We came here so we would have no king mm-hmm. and suddenly we're electing a king. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's crazy, right? Why are we electing a king? We don't want a king. Why does it matter what the president thinks, right? On either side. I don't care what their policy is because they shouldn't have any power to implant it. It's so how do, you, how do you break deadlocks, right? Eventually, if you, if you well, see, it's, interesting. Well, I mean, it's, tricky. it's tricky. I agree. But I would rather a, a big group of people who are each elected to represent a group of people be making decisions. I want Congress and Congress has its difficulties, but it, I don't want them to be battling this individual. Yeah. That's what scares me. Individual power is scary and it has been historically. It's never worked out. Giving one person a lot of power has never worked out in yeah. history. Well, right? I, I think it's because so, the, the executive branch seems to be, and I haven't researched this, in totality, so I'm sure someone's going to jump in and tell me I'm wrong. But based on what, what anecdotal evidence I'm having, the reading I've been doing, the executive branch is beginning to get more and more and more power through the executive, um, right, the, 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 the directors or whatever they can just yeah. make decisions. And, but you know, I, I think it's set up with too much power as it is. I, I just don't, I don't agree with it, and I don't think it was meant to be that way. Um, I do think over time it's shifted and become more and more powerful um, as we go. But listen, I'm not a, I'm, again, as I said, I, nobody should ever can take, I say, with a grain of salt. I am just a crazy writer who lives in a mall and just wants to write my stories. I don't want to throw myself into the fray of all of that because uh, there are much smarter people than me writing about that. Yeah. All right. So, so this was dope. Let's end on a, on a interesting and, and less crazy note, right? So, you, let's, you, what do you what do you want to share? You want to talk about your family? You want to talk about your next um, project? Where do you want to end this discussion? This has been great, dude. It's funny. Uh, I'm gonna not bullshit. Like I don't know if you got my video. Welcome you to the show. Did you get that? I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, so people, what you don't know about Ben here is literally I was cursing his ass because we said he, he agreed to do the show, and then we sent him all our stuff and we, we communicate. But I got nothing back. Oh yeah. <laughs> I am on an airplane pretty much every day of my life at this point, and I am like the absent-minded professor. So until I like something alerts me that I'm supposed to be doing something, I have no. There have been many times in my life where I've gotten a phone call telling me I'm live. I'm supposed to be live in like a city that I'm nowhere near. <laughs> so there's been a lot. Of, you know, yeah, it's happened to me a lot. So I'm happy that we did this. I think you're awesome and your energy is incredible. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, my kid's book is out. So if you have a kid, yeah, between oh, yeah. 10 and 14, it's called Charlie Numbers, Charlie Numbers and the Woolly Mammoth. It's a, a group about a group of whiz kids, sixth graders who solve mysteries. 
kind of like the old Encyclopedia Brown was. And it's about in this episode, uh, they find a uh, a woolly mammoth tusk in the Boston Public Gardens, and that's the mystery unfolds from there. And um, it's a really cool series. It's going to be uh, made into a television show by Ellen Pompeo of mm-hmm. Grey's Anatomy, which is great. Um, and uh, she's going to be producing it. And so if you have a middle grade kid, it's Charlie Numbers and the Woolly Mammoth, and it's on Amazon now. And then Bitcoin Billionaires, um, if you haven't read it yet, please uh, grab it. It's, it's an incredible, incredible time writing that project, and we're working on the movie. And then the TV show Billions comes back in the spring, and I'm one of the writers on that now. Um, and I'm looking for my next big story. So if anybody has something good, send it my way. If Hunter Biden is watching, give me a call. I'd love to. You just said you were a new political. <laughs> political story I would do. I think Hunter Biden is a perfect Mesric character. This is a kid who kind of fell into this crazy thing. His dad is someone, and suddenly he's caught up in bigger and bigger and bigger, and he's an interesting character. And I think there's a story that is untold about how he has fallen into all of this. And that would be neat. But and so if someone knows Hunter, tell him to give me a call. But other than that, I, I don't know if I would get into the political arena. But anyways, I, uh, I'm open to story suggestions. So find me on Twitter and uh, pitch me some stories. Where's the spot? All right, so I have to ask though, being a Boston guy, right? How yeah. in the world did you choose the Boston Public Gardens, considering you can't walk on the lawn? If it's in Boston Commons, I would have been okay. A bunch of kids did yeah. around. But yeah. you can't do anything in Boston Public Gardens. You can't go on the lawn. You can't. Like, <laughs> so my kid, it was my kid actually had a class field trip um, in there, and that's kind of how we got the uh, storyline. But woolly mammoths or something, I wrote a book called Woolly, which was about a scientist at Harvard who's actually trying to bring back the woolly mammoth. Yeah, yeah. And so this book is a kid's version of that. They end up in that lab learning about the genetics of bringing back a prehistoric creature. Um, so it's it's a really cool story. If you have a kid who's interested in science, um, you should pick it up. And uh, and that's it. Yeah, thank you. Dude, you, you were dope. I loved it. You were awesome. This was fantastic. You were way more energy than I, than I expected. I didn't know what to expect. But thank you, man. Uh, I, I, mean, I, was, you know what? I would love to... Uh, you should uh, send me some advice on on how to how to build those massive online audiences because I'll tell you the publishers don't have any idea and so Bitcoin Billionaires is a book you know I'm trying to get it out there as much as I can and it's doing great but it is still a mystery to me how how that whole world works. So um, I'll do for you. So I'll do for you. I, you I got your phone number right. Yeah. I'll give you a shout and and when you have time or whatever we'll get on a Zoom conference or we'll just bullshit around in Boston there we can sit and have coffee. Uh, or, or a Red Bull, I don't drink coffee. But anyways, um, because here's what it comes down to. And you may or may not like it. Like This may or may not suit you, right? It is about creating a connection with your desired audience almost every day, right? So it's not a project. It's literally reaching out and talking to them regularly and not pitching them. So it might be literally, it might be, I'm just guessing like just one thing. It might be you doing a reading of the book where you read for 10 minutes <laughs> every day. And people know to come up and listen to you read your own book, right? It may be you talking about um, something that happened to you that day that, with your kid that's really important to you. So now they're connected to you personally. It may be you talking about an author you had just read that people, like, it's literally, I'm, I'm not shitting you. People don't get this. Everything has to be packaged. It's literally building an environment that allows you to think in terms of how can I drop a little bit of love content 
that people will be drawn to and engage with on a regular basis, day after day after day after day. That's awesome, man. You're, you know your stuff. I, I think that's actually really interesting. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm going to take you up on that. Let's talk soon. It'll be my pleasure. All right. Have a great day. Thanks a bunch. Enjoy your weekend, bro. Go Thank you very much, peeps. Y'all have been listening to Keenan Live, where we talk to the interesting, the rebellious, and the successful. Look, you can find us in any dope place where you get your podcasts, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitches. We're everywhere. Go check us out, and please subscribe if you like this. Also, if you want to watch, you want to see the video of this live event, Go to YouTube, Keenan Live at YouTube, and you can watch it all. All right, y'all. Thanks a bunch. You know what I'm going to say. Till next time, peace. I'm out.